You're listening to a live recorded teaching of the Sunday Gathering at Proclamation Church in Nashville, Tennessee. We hope that this teaching reminds you of the love that Jesus has for you. To find out more about Proclamation Church or to support the mission and vision of our ministry, visit us at proclamationtn.com. Good morning. Today we're reading from Luke 2, 25 through 38. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus to perform for him, that was what was customary (laughs) under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what, they, at what was being said about him. When Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Amen. Well, it is, uh, it's wild to think uh, that 2023 started like two months ago, and the year is almost over, right? Uh, as bananas. But we have this, this service, and then uh, one service uh, next weekend, uh, and then we'll have our rhythm of rest, and then we'll Jump into 2024. That's that's crazy. Uh, I was looking at a picture of myself uh, from the beginning of this year into where we are right now, uh, and like I knew that my beard was grayer. Uh, I had no idea just how gray. Uh, so I don't know if I should say thank you for that or or what. Uh, but uh, either way, it's uh, fun times, right? Uh, well, we are continuing in our series, uh, and this is the first time in this Advent. Uh, time that we are actually looking at an actual Christmas story uh, in the series. Uh, I know many of you guys have been waiting when we're going to get to Luke, right? Because Luke is where you typically preach on uh, during uh, during December and things like that. Um, but oftentimes, when looking at the Christmas story, uh, many go to the book of Luke, uh, and the reason why is because Luke paints a picture uh, with a lot of specifics when it comes to uh, the Christmas story, which is just very exciting to me as he sets the context. For this narrative, here's what's so interesting uh, that that Luke does that a lot of others don't do in their book. He essentially sets for us, uh, he paints a picture of this emotional, political history that Jesus is stepping into uh, uh, on the scene, right? And for Jews living under the rule of Caesar, life itself was filled with a lot of trauma. It was filled with a lot of uh, 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 drama and torture and all these different things, right? There was this desperate time. And oftentimes, desperate times feel uh, 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 hope is, is fueling these moments, right? And this is what we see in, in Luke. 
when, when desperate times come, when these hope-filled, uh, desperate moments take place, this is when Christ steps onto the scene. And what we realize about Advent that oftentimes we don't talk about is Advent is desperation. It's desperation. It's, it's this waiting, this eager expectation of what's to come, realizing that things aren't the way that it should be. We need a Messiah. If you've ever listened to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, his tagline is looking at what's overlooked and misunderstood. And what's so interesting is as we look at the story of Anna and Simeon, many of you guys probably never heard a sermon about them. Oftentimes they are overlooked and misunderstood. But here's what's so beautiful about what we are going to see today. When you think about desperation, desperation finds its end. We've talked about that. We see that come to fruition uh, for Simeon and Anna in this story. God in his goodness shows us the waiting of these two people. And by looking at these two, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. We can begin ourselves to have a proper framework of what desperately waiting looks like, which, by the way, is the title of this sermon, Desperately Waiting. To wrap our minds around this idea, we need to ask ourselves a few questions in our waiting. The first question is this, what is God doing while I desperately wait? What is he doing? Well, jumping right in, we see these two were waiting in this text, Simeon and Anna. If you look at what they were waiting for, they essentially parallel each other. When you look at verse 25 and then later on in verse 38, Simeon himself was looking forward to Israel's consolation. And Anna, after seeing Jesus, went and spoke to the people. And we can assume that she is also included in the group of people who were waiting, who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This narrative is fueled by this idea of waiting. So what does this mean? What exactly were they looking forward to? Well, we need to understand the history of Israel during this time. The history of the Jewish people were one of bondage and oppression and burden and loss of kingdoms and exile. These people were all too familiar with desperation. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this happening, right, to to Israel's people. They were waiting for consolation. They were waiting for redemption. And this waiting followed them all the way up into the New Testament. So when we see that they're waiting for consolation and redemption, it is used here to call attention to the Jewish hope of the coming of the Messiah. For Luke, he wasn't referring to the fulfillment of Jewish political hopes or deliverance from enemies or anything like that. No, he was talking about the salvation that Jesus would eventually bring. And as far as we can tell, this is how Simeon and Anna looked at it. This is how they looked at the baby Jesus, that their waiting had finally come to an end that the Messiah was here, that the Messiah was with them. He was bringing consolation and redemption at last. Praise God. Now, here's what I love about this. What blows me away is that Simeon and Anna, they don't see the full scope of the story, right? They never see Jesus walk on water. They never see Jesus call Lazarus out of the dead or heal anybody. They don't see Jesus feed the 5,000, any of those things. But yet we see both of them have this response to the Messiah stepping on the scene. They're filled with peace. They're filled with joy. They're filled with excitement. They don't see any of these things. In fact, as far as we can tell, Simeon and Anna aren't even mentioned ever again in Scripture outside of this story. But what we see is this assurance that comes across both of them because they saw Jesus. They had realized finally that their waiting was not in vain, that the Messiah was finally here. And again, the response, Simeon was full of peace, Anna full of thankfulness. 
The purpose in their waiting was to see Jesus do something in their desperation that nobody else could. And so that leaves us with asking a question for ourselves this morning, right? What do we do while we wait? What is God doing in my waiting, right? Family, we need to understand this. Something actually is happening while nothing is happening. He he is doing something while we are looking around and wondering what the heck is going on. What is God doing? Listen, God uses our desperate waiting to do something inside of us, and we must remember that. Listen, if we rewind the story all the way back to Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, they were told, hey, be obedient, don't don't eat of this fruit. And we see this story of rebellion against God begin to take shape. Once they believed that God didn't have their best interest in mind, they decided to go ahead without God and do what they wanted. And family, too often this is exactly what we do and how we operate. When God tells us to wait, we don't trust him. Instead, we go ahead. We find ways to accomplish what we want to happen. We want to know what God is doing, right? So we have to ask, what is God doing in our waiting? Well, the question to that is this. He is teaching us how to learn to trust him, to show that he is still a good father to his children, to put down that demanding, screaming baby inside of every single one of us, that God is a good father to us. Family, in our waiting, the Lord wants to reveal himself to us in the same way he did for Simeon and Anna. But unfortunately, we too quickly settle for substitutes. We allow our current circumstances to dictate how we respond instead of trusting in a God who wants to bring us complete comfort and redemption. As humans, we're the peak of God's creation, right? And in that, we know the experience of consistent grief, never-ending frustration, pain. We're all witnesses to this. Depravity knows no limits. We see that. And because we see that, and because many of us have experienced that, we all so desperately want to be consoled. We want comfort. We want someone to care for us. And the beauty of this story is that God understands that about us. And he has come to do just that for us through Jesus. When Adam and Eve refused to, uh, when Adam and Eve refused to wait, God had already planned a rescue, and that rescue was Jesus Christ. So for us, we need to understand waiting, even though it's filled with pain and frustration, is also filled with purpose and usefulness. Waiting is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Stop and think about it. God took literally thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene, before Jesus would come wrapped in flesh like us, to live the perfect life we couldn't, to die the death that we deserve to die to redeem us. But the beauty of waiting is that we become like him in the midst of it. And we get to experience his redemption, which leads me to the second thing this morning. What do I do while I desperately wait? What do I do while I'm waiting? Glad you asked. This text, if you look at it closely, shows us three specific things. The very first thing that we should be doing while we desperately wait is to devote ourselves to the things of God. What do I mean by that? In verse 25, the second part of it, what does it say? That this man, Simeon, was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Man, what a narrative to have about yourself, right? That, that this is the only thing that's ever said about Simeon, and that's the thing that's said about him. He was righteous. He was devout. He was looking forward to God doing what he said he was going to do, and the Holy Spirit was on that man. <laughs> I love that, right? 
When I think of Simeon, I think of a super old man. Uh, Marty was in the first service, and so I, you know, I was like, it's like Marty, right? He's not in here to defend himself, but <laughs> I asked him if I could use him as an illustration. He said yes. He didn't know what I was using him for. But I think of Marty, right? Like this old guy, you know, just coming here, being faithful, right? That's, that's when, I, when I look at Marty, that's what I see. This faithful guy that's coming in regularly, consistently, serving, ready to, ready to step in to care for people. This is, this is Simeon. He's coming in. He's, he's devout. He's righteous. He's coming into the temple regularly. And, and what's so awesome about that is, is that's what people knew about him. That's why Luke wrote that. And so he's coming in every day, and you can imagine that the priest sees him and is like, yo, Simeon, what's up? Oh, you know me, just doing what I do, devoting myself to the Lord, going through the motions that I'm supposed to do. Oh, and by the way, waiting for the Messiah. Have you seen him yet? Nope. But the Holy Spirit told me that I was going to see him. So I got in a car accident on the way here, but it's okay. I knew I wasn't going to die because I didn't see the Messiah yet. You know what I'm saying? This is how he lived his life. And he's going through the motions every single day, and eventually he's having this conversation with the priest, and the priest probably, you know, looking at him like, man, starting to feel bad for this guy. He's old, he's been doing this his whole entire life, and he has yet to see the thing that's been promised to him. He's, he's going through all these motions. But eventually one day, he sees the Messiah, right? Now, I'm sure he probably had some moments of being disappointed, but he finally saw the Messiah for himself. This promise was finally fulfilled. And I love this. Out of all the babies that were going through all the customs of that day, Simeon knew this was the Messiah, right? Now, he picked up that baby and he blessed God, it says, right? Two things to take into consideration. One, I wonder what was going through Mary's mind, right? That this random guy picks up her baby, right? You, we know we sing that song every Christmas, Mary, did you know? She had to know because Luke didn't record her throat punching Simeon, right? <laughs> she had to know this was the Messiah. She's like, yes, this is going to happen, right? This is just what's happening with my baby, right? But here's the second most important thing, right? There is nothing in life right now that is ever going to compare to seeing Jesus face to face, Right? We, we see Simeon see Jesus, and what does he say? He says that he's at peace, and essentially he's like, yo, you can take me now. I'm good. I, I, I have met exactly what I needed to, met, to meet. I've seen him. I'm good. You know, I remember thinking, uh, asking Jesus a long time ago, right, when I was still in high school, and, and saying, Jesus, don't come yet until I get married, Okay? I remember praying that prayer. And then I remember after I got married, I was like, Jesus, you know, don't come yet until I have kids, right? Remember praying that prayer. And now I'm at a spot where I'm praying, Jesus, I've got, I've got a wife, you know, I've got my kids. These kids, go ahead and come now, whenever you're ready, right? <laughs> I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not going to be upset. I'm here when you are, you know what I'm saying, right? And all the parents are like, yes, amen to that. But here's what that prayer reveals about me, right? That in reality, there, I, I thought that there are joy, there's joy in my wife, joy in my children, joy in successes here on earth, when in reality, all those things pale in comparison to knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. And this is why Simeon could be like, yo, I'm good. I have seen 
Jesus. And my hope is that's all of our prayer. That knowing Jesus is enough for us. And the only way that that prayer is answered is when we truly devote ourselves to Jesus in the same way that Simeon was doing. But not just that. We must also trust the Spirit's, Spirit's guidance. Look again at the end of verse 25, all into verse 27, the beginning of it. What does it say? The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. The language that's used here is not a one-time appearance or manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but instead we see that the Holy Spirit was abiding on Simeon. His whole life was being surrounded by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Simeon was, was singled out by the Holy Spirit, by God, to be uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit. Not only did he have the unique endowment of God's Spirit upon him, but God had given them this special revelation. You're going to see the Messiah before you die. So we see this communing with God through the Holy Spirit. So what do we see this? The Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him. He moved around in his spirit. Three times in three verses, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned. And it all has to do with Simeon. Here's what's beautiful about that section for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? You got the same Holy Spirit that Simeon did. You've got that gift. Every follower of Jesus. If that is true, what do we need to remember about the Holy Spirit then in his guiding us in our moments of desperately waiting? Well, one very real job of the Holy Spirit is to bring us comfort, which is why Jesus called him the comforter. The word in the Greek actually stems from the same word that we just looked at earlier, consolation. This, this paraclete, that Jesus was to bring consolation to Israel. So we see this, this consolation, this prize, if you will, is simply another word for comfort. And for us in Jesus Christ, we get our comfort from the comforter. Jesus knew that we were going to be in this realm of the already not yet, where we're going to have a lot of desperate moments, a lot of frustration. And in the midst of it, he's like, you need some comfort in that. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. And so we have that in us, right? So he gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us while we waited. But in fact, he wants to be with us in our waiting. This is one of his jobs. And as a matter of fact, when we're in our seasons of desperation and waiting for the Holy Spirit to be revealed, Romans 8 reminds us that the Holy Spirit actually helps us in our weaknesses. When, when we're going through these desperate moments and we don't know what to say, it also reminds us that the Holy Spirit is actually praying for us. I love that, guys. He's with us in our waiting. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't just simply comfort us. He reminds us of the promises of Jesus. That's why we read in the second part of John 14, 26, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit's coming, and he says this. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. What has Jesus said to you that you need to be reminded of today? Maybe it's Hebrews chapter 13 where you need to be reminded that even in the midst of your desperate moments when you feel alone, that he will never leave you or forsake you. Maybe it's, it's Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where you've had these moments where you've been sinning and you've been failing and you've been dropping the ball that you need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit that there is no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. That your mind, the world, everything that you've done is constantly trying to beat you down, trying to tell you that you are condemned. But the Holy Spirit is saying, no, no, you're not condemned. You are free. 
You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High God. This is who you are. You are not condemned. In fact, when you sin, Jesus is welcoming you in. We need to understand that. But here's the thing. Even though we know that he comforts us, even though we know that he's bringing to mind promises that are ours, that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, even though all those things are true, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have family members who get cancer. It doesn't mean that we're never going to see anyone die. It doesn't mean that we're going to have broken relationships with, with loved ones in our family. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be infertility of wombs. It doesn't mean that we're going to find jobs that are going to come easy. It doesn't mean that marriages, all marriages will be restored. It doesn't mean that some will be married. However, in those circumstances, he is reminding us, the Holy Spirit, that God is still good in spite of. Family, in the waiting, his spirit is comforting us and reminding us of the goodness of God. Now, that's all well and good for many of us, but that still doesn't change the circumstances, right? You are correct. But that doesn't mean we stop moving forward, which leads me to number three. The third thing that we do while we wait, we stay active in our pursuit of God. Look at verse 36 again. There was also the prophetess Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. It's so fascinating that Luke would take the time to, to add that random tidbit of information about Anna. Anyone else find that interesting? What, what do we see about Anna? There's an unfortunate circumstance that Anna walked in. It says she was married for only seven years. So given the customs of their time, she was probably married between 13 or 17 years old. But it says essentially, but lost her husband after seven years. Now, when you read this in different translations and things, the, the Greek can be somewhat confusing. It can be interpreted a certain way. But it can be interpreted that at, at this time now, she's 84. Or at some point in her life, she was married, right? And uh, uh, between at 13, was married until she was 20, and has been a widow for 84 years. So it's, it's weird to, to kind of comprehend but either way, here's what we know about Anna. She's seasoned. <laughs> it's either she's 84 or 104. She's been around for a while. And in the midst of her being around for a very long time, what has she been doing the entire time? Going to the temple, praying, fasting, worshiping God. She's been active in what it means in her pursuit of God. I said last week, right, that our desperate moments will do one of two things. It will either push us to God or away from God. For Anna, it pushed her to God. She lost her husband. She was this widow. And again, our tendency is to try to fix our situations. Why didn't Anna just get a new husband? It wouldn't have been wrong for her to, to, to remarry or anything like that, right? If she did, that would have been okay. But it doesn't tell us that about her. What does it tell us? She depended on God, and she waited for him. Sometimes waiting means actually killing activity, and sometimes waiting means pursuing God all the more. Here's, here's a question. When was the last time in your most desperate moment that you spent time actually fasting and praying to God in the middle of it? 
when I, when I, when I wrote that down, I, I was asking me. <laughs> and full transparency, it's been a long time. I think, I, think, I think what happens often, we pray over situations. I think we do. We ask people to pray. Man, I'm going through this. Pray for me. But when have we really been on our face crying out to God, denying ourselves to truly depend on the Lord to meet whatever situation is going on? For Anna, she's like, yo, this is what I do. I'm, I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm depending on the Lord. Our circumstances, family, should drive us to God. And here's the thing. Maybe you're angry right now. Life hasn't panned out the way that you wanted it to. You've been faithful to what God has told you to do, and yet you have yet to reap the benefits of what you think you deserve. How does that make you feel? I know. You're angry, crushed, frustrated, ticked off, disappointed. Listen to me. Whatever you may be feeling right now, no matter how your circumstances are looking, God sees you, and he knows. You may not have the perfect job or the most well-behaved kids. You may not have any kids at all. You may have lost someone. I don't know what your situation is, but I can assure you this. At the end of it all, it'll still be worth it. It'll still be worth it. Which leads me to my final point this morning. What we receive in the end will be worth the wait. What we receive will be worth the wait. Look at verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary without getting punched in the throat. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Is waiting worth it? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. Again, I love writing sermons, but sometimes writing sermons, oftentimes, all the time. <laughs> writing sermons can be very revealing to myself. And I have to sit and wrestle with different things in my own life, different desperate moments that I'm dealing with. And I, and I know I'm not alone, guys. I, I get your emails, I get your text messages, I get your phone calls, we get coffee. There are many of you who are wrestling with things in your life. You're waiting on God to fulfill his promise to restore and to redeem completely. But I think about Jesus' final return and for us to see him and to see his, this fully glorified body with full of love that he has for us. I'm ready to see that. But even as I wait to see it, guess what? As I'm waiting, I'm weary. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm regularly praying and asking, how long? And I know many of you guys are as well. Can we all agree we're tired? <laughs> Some of you don't want to admit it. We're tired. We're frustrated. Life is dull. I'm tired of feeling over and over again, excuse me, proving over and over again just how much I need God's grace. Asking him to remove the same sin over and over again. But here's the thing, in the midst of our tiredness, in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our frustration, maybe this is an opportunity for us to be reminded that we need a renewed anticipation, a renewed hope, and a vision of who Jesus is. One that steps in the tired with us. 
one that steps in the weariness with us. He's like, yo, I got you. I'm with you. You see, it's in the season of being tired and waiting that we begin to see what's true of our hearts, that we're desperately wicked and in constant need of God's saving grace. You see, what many of us want is peace here. This is what I mean. We don't want any more sickness here. We don't want no more death here. We want marriage here. We want children here. We want good gifts here. And when those things don't happen, what is our tendency? We question the goodness of God. We naturally do that. John Piper asks it this way. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all your friends that you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a challenging question. I was just talking to to my brother, we were having a conversation about the afterlife, eschatology, fun times in the Delane household, right? We're, we're talking about these things, and, and I remember saying to him, I was like, I said, you know, heaven is simply the being in the presence of God. When, when, we, think of, when we think of hell, that's being in the, not being in the presence of God. Heaven is simply being in the presence of God. Don't get me wrong, streets of gold, that sounds dope. Having a mansion sounds phenomenal. That crown, bro, I'm going to wear it nicely. <laughs> but none of those things matter if Jesus is not there. If I can't take that crown off and, and actually lay it at the feet of the one who gave it to me, who earned it for me, it's pointless. Listen, we can have the good things here and feel like that we are at peace and peace is all well and good, but peace without Jesus is not peace at all. It's not. And while we wait, man, waiting actually truly reveals what's going on in our hearts. We have opportunities to have these idols removed. He came, as the text says, to expose hearts and our response is going to be either one of a desperate pursuit of him or one of blatant rebellion of what he wants for us. We dream of the sweet by and by and we look forward to that day, but in looking ahead, we often miss what's happening right now while we wait. You see, in our waiting, he is creating something inside of us, something new right now. That waiting is producing in us one less thing that Jesus is going to have to glorify when we see him face to face. In our waiting, he's producing in us right now the image of Christ. Paul David Tripp says it this way, waiting is not just about what I get at the end of the wait, but about who I become as I wait. Who are we becoming, family? As sweet as it sounds that Christ is working in us and for us in our waiting, the truth of the matter is we have to fight to remain faithful in our waiting. This baby boy came to expose the hearts of those who pretend to be holy and to also expose those who fear that they'll never be holy enough. He has come for us all. What Jesus has come to do is to show us our need for salvation, even better, that he will be salvation for us. Our waiting shows us our need for a savior, 
how are you responding? This text shows us that we begin to see two routes essentially take place. We will either humbly wait for the Lord, receive him, and that when he comes, or when all that that comes with him, and know that in our waiting we will be elevated with him, or in our pride and arrogance we will take the so-called easy route and find ourselves in judgment before Jesus. The question you need to ask yourself today is this, and you're waiting, what does your heart reveal about what you really want? What is he showing you? If it isn't Jesus and what it looks like to become more like Jesus, then we're missing the point. Waiting is worth it. Simeon and Anna were waiting for Jesus and all that he brought. And so should we. But here's the thing. As we think about waiting, I think it's easy for us to forget that God is also waiting as well. What do I mean by that? Well, Scripture tells us that he waits patiently for our repentance. He's waiting for more children to be adopted into his family. He is waiting for the day that he will be able to wipe every tear away from our eye. He is waiting for pain and death to be no more. Family, God, too, is waiting. And in his waiting, we have an opportunity to see him step into the trenches with us, which is why, ironically, in our desperation, God is still gracious enough to use us, <laughs> to utilize us. There's an aspect of this story that, again, over, overlooked. But what does Anna do as soon as she sees Jesus? She goes and proclaims. I've, I've been waiting for this, 84-year-old plus Anna. I've seen it. I got to go and tell. <laughs> I've got to, I got to get my go tell it on a mountain on. I've got to share the truth of this. Because I understand that there's a whole nation of people who, like me, are desperately waiting to see something happen. You know, guys, I think it's easy for us to think that our desperate moments are, are simply personal. No, it's universal. Every single one of us in this room, we are desperately waiting for something. There's something that's taken place in our lives that has marked us. And we're asking God to do something special in it. And we're waiting for that to happen. But while we do that, I know sometimes it's really frustrating to hear that God uses our stories to be the ones to show off his glory to those who are walking through some of the same stuff. That, that, yo, we just want freedom from the mess, but forgetting that in the mess, we have a message. I know that was cliche, but you're welcome. We've got something to give to someone. That God is a good God, that he's a loving God, that he wants to bring in those that he is waiting for. So many others are waiting for redemption, salvation, and peace, and they are looking for it in all the wrong places. Who will tell them? Those who've experienced grace. Those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Who will go and proclaim? I pray that it's us. I pray it's those who've experienced his grace in real ways, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of hurt, even in the midst of shame, in the midst of waiting. I pray that we would be the people to say, hey, look at what God has done still. Do you know him? 
Lord, let that be us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to look at your word. I pray that we would truly see that as we desperately wait, you are doing something in our lives. You are ministering. You are caring. You're shepherding us. And Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would dig in deeper to what you're doing. Father, have your way in in our lives that people, when they see us walk through dark valleys, hard moments, that they would see your love, they would see your kindness, they would see your grace, that they in turn would experience it for themselves. Father, there are people in this room who have yet to taste and see that you are good. As they're walking through desperate moments right now, ashamed and scared, that, Father, you would meet them, that the Holy Spirit would tug on their heart here in this moment, that they would ask the question, what must I do to be saved? How can I go through my desperate moments but still have hope? God, answer that question for them today through your son, Jesus. We ask this knowing that you can do far more above than what we ask or imagine. Let that be the case. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.